You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello and a very warm welcome to Middle East Analysis. James Abbott here hosting. Uh, Delighted to say that we are sticking to our plan of bringing you a Middle East Analysis podcast once a month. Delighted. Joining us today is Dr. Harry Hagopian, as always. And we're going to be talking about Syria 10 years on. Would you believe 10 years from the civil war, the popular uprisings, the Arab Spring, you can call it many different things. We spoke about this back in 2011, would you believe? It's unbelievable that it's been a decade. We will also talk about Libya, the national unity government. You know, will this lend itself to unity after uh, the, the terrible events going on in Libya? A little bit on Yemen. Yemen is something of a humanitarian catastrophe, and I'll be keen to get... Dr. Harry Gopian's thoughts on that and probably hasn't escaped your attention that for the 800,000th time there are elections in Israel. So we want to really just catch up with what this means, whether the fourth round is going to actually lead to something solid and concrete, who the kingmaker might be in this. So lots to talk about. First of all, I'm just going to say hello, Harry. How are you? Hello, James. It's a pleasure uh, hearing your voice again. We used to do these sitting in front of each other. Now we're getting used to do it virtually. It's not the same thing. It's a bit more impersonal. But it's, again, a pleasure to do Middle East analysis and to stick by our monthly routine in as much as possible. Absolutely right. And I don't know if you can believe it. I'm struggling to believe it, that it has been 10 years since we first spoke about Syria and the tension in Syria and Bashar al-Assad, the president, and, you know, his future. We, we, we made many speculations, some right, quite a few wrong as well. And what I'd like to do, um, do indulge me with this one, Harry. I'd like to play out a clip from one of our early Middle East analysis podcasts, probably the sixth or seventh podcast. And we started at that point to talk about Syria. This is what you said on the 1st of April, 2011. There have been some demonstrations against the regime in many parts of Syria, not least in uh, Latakia, in Dara, in Tafas, in uh, other parts of the country. There have also been demonstrations supporting the regime and supporting President Bashar al-Assad. So in a sense, at the moment, I think Syria is pretty much a big question mark whether the people would accept the promises that have been made for reforms to come or whether the momentum would continue even more. So Harry, Syria, a big question mark you said 10 years ago. I guess I'm going to start by saying what questions remain and what questions, if any, have been answered in terms of the plight of the people, certainly. James, first of all, let me say that uh, you made me feel very old. (laughs) Because we've been doing this for 10 years, you and I, and we've had some high moments and some low moments with the uh, Middle East, North Africa and Gulf region over the years. And to hear myself uh, 10 years ago uh, in 2011 talking about Syria and then looking at Syria today, it reinforces in my mind two things. The first is how long-suffering the people, the citizens of Syria, as well as of the whole region have been. Because there have been two waves of revolutionary uprisings in the region, in the Middle East, North Africa. One was the first one with Syria in it. And then after that, there was a second wave as well that we have spoken about uh, in the past. And that includes countries like Sudan, Iraq, and Lebanon. Now, the other Uh, point you evoked when I was listening to this short clip is that you and I have joked most of the times when we've recorded the Middle East analysis. You've teased me when I've said that, uh, James, I'm not a prophet. (laughs) Today, I'm not going to say the same thing because if we have a few regular faithful uh, listeners, they would say, Harry, we've heard this one. Try something more original on us. And I'm going to remind you of something Else, And that is one of my favorite philosophers, Socrates. And in one of his statements, he said, 
one thing only I know, and that is that I know nothing. And I think that is quite powerful. And really, if more people, starting with politicians, were to subscribe to this Socratic uh, piece of advice, we would perhaps be in a slightly better position than we are today. Why? Because if I look at Syria 10 years down the line, in 2011 to 2021, what do I see? Now, Syria had roughly at the start of the uprisings in Dara in the south, about 22 million population. Today, of those 22 million, 5.7 million are refugees outside the country. Most of them could be found in Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan. But there are those who perhaps are a bit more fortunate and they found uh, safety elsewhere across the world, including Europe and more particularly uh, Germany. Then, within the country itself, given the whole damage and destruction, 6.7 million internally displaced persons. So if you add 6.7 and 5.7 James together, you get over 12 million people who are in a state of flux, and that is more than half the population of 22 million. That is staggering for a country that has so much uncertainty, that has lost so much of its human resources and skills, and that has people in the country that have basically been thrown out of their own neighborhoods, their own towns, their own villages and cities, and gone elsewhere seeking some safety, some peace. And the interesting thing that over the 10 years that I have personally felt, amongst other things, because all I hear in the last couple of weeks, last month perhaps, and I'm sure you do too, is everybody talking about the 10th anniversary of the Arab revolutionary uprisings. And everybody is giving an idea as to what happens, their angle, their viewpoint, their op-ed in the the papers and the various uh, outlets. One thing that I find very interesting is that gradually from the start of the revolution in uh, 2011 in the south, as I said, in Dara, which started peacefully, and all people wanted was a little bit more freedom, and then it developed, it morphed into something uh, more confrontational, into something more weaponized because the regime refused to accept what they were asking for. What has happened is that there has been a very clear, in my opinion, change in the narrative. Because at the beginning, if you recall, the West, and I'm talking and you're talking from uh, Europe, uh, from the UK, uh, the West was empathetic to what those citizens were asking for. Even President Barack Obama, with his famous red line, was also saying, yes, they are looking for freedom and they're looking for uh, dignity. But gradually, that changed. Because at the beginning, all the information that we got out of it was that Bashar Assad was coming down hard on these people who were looking for their freedoms. And this was done to be honest with you, uh, through the power of citizen journalism. And that these were ordinary people who had their little mobiles in their hands trying to convey to the outside world what is happening. And what was happening showed a very, very well-armed army facing people who were not very well-armed at all and whose intentions were not to confront the regime in a bloodbath. But Mm. then gradually that changed, and the whole new narrative, which Russia, since it came into Syria in 2015, tried to help develop, is that President Bashar Assad is not really the culprit that the West makes him out to be, that he's not the reason why Syria is in the mess that it is today. 
So basically, that citizen journalism that had tried in its primitive ways to convey uh, the reality on the ground was basically being overturned because the regime and the regime's allies had mobilized seas and seas of trolls to drown out or even to dilute the narrative around this conflict. And this wasn't only happening in Syria, James. It was happening across uh, the whole region, in Syria, elsewhere in the Arab world. So the lesson I take out of this for activists and citizen journalists is that we can depend on social media to some extent, but not more than that, because trolls and false information rooms free, but we need to work to control and promote the true narrative, to be creative in delivering it to the outside world so that the outside world can act upon it. Now, how does the outside world act upon it? Well, I'll give you one simple example. Universal jurisdiction and transitional justice. These are two terms that have also been banded about. Half the time I see people using them, and I'm not sure if they even know what they're saying. But transitional justice for me as a lawyer, as somebody who's done conflict resolution, it means that it's different measures. Those measures could be judicial, could be non-judicial, that are used, that are implemented in order to redress legacies of human rights abuses. For instance, criminal prosecutions. For instance, truth commissions, reparations, institutional reforms. And how does this happen? We've already seen the tip of the iceberg with citizens across Europe, in Germany and in France more particularly, who have got some information, who are going to the courts in order to say, look, this is what has happened. And we can see this happening. And in my opinion, This is one example of why in a previous recording you and I had and a discussion we had in that recording, I said that much as at the moment the revolutionary uprisings are in limbo, those archives that some people are diligently working on, putting together, whether it is those photos that were smuggled out of uh, Uh, Syria, whether it is the information that is being put together in the Netherlands and elsewhere, this is going to come true one day when this new narrative will not work anymore and people would realize that it is time to go back to justice. That is basically the message I get out of those uh, 10 years. The reality, the horror of the reality where half the population is not where it should be, and also the way the uh, narrative was egregiously shifted, changed, overturned in order to benefit the regime, which basically does not represent the ordinary citizen, but represents itself and some of the people around it. And the more those efforts of transitional justice succeed, the more cracks we'll see within the ruling elites, be that in Syria or elsewhere in the Arab world, because people who are clannish, who are working together because they've got interests, they start getting a bit worried, and that is where each one will start saying, forget the clan, I'm going to think of number one. And for me, that's the beginning of the end. But when would that happen? That is the big question, and I refer you back again today, not to the prophets, but to Socrates. Very well said. Look, I'm going to be, I'm going to ask you a question. I was going to sit on my hands knowing that we've got quite a lot to get through in the remaining half hour or so. But just very quickly, the the question I can't get out of my head is who's in charge in Syria now? Because it doesn't really feel like Bashar al-Assad. Well, that's easy, and it won't take more than one or two minutes. Syria basically has a president, but it's a nominal tokenistic president who's there because he represents uh, the country in terms of ethnicity and what have you. But the reality is that the country is divided. If you look at the country now, there are four powers that are running the country. Foremost amongst them is Russia, 
then you've got Iran, then you've got Turkey, then you've got the United States. Those four are the key countries that have a physical presence in different parts of the country and who are trying to run the country according to their own uh, political agendas. But of all those four, I would say if I were to hazard a very undetailed and naive statement, I would say probably the one that is running the show most of all is uh, Russia. Succinct. Thank you, Harry. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do before we move on. We haven't talked about Yemen for for many a month, so we are going to talk about Yemen. But just quickly, with regard to the wider Arab world that you've spoken about, let's just move into North Africa quickly and Libya, because obviously with a national unity government, unity in inverted commas, I'm wondering if, you know, yet, yet another country where there are many global actors in play here, Will this actually lead to unity? How positive or negative are you about Libya at the moment? Well, at the moment, uh, James, and again, we, you and I have spoken about Libya quite a bit. And if you recall, I've often told you that Libya reminds me of an unspoiled Cyprus mm. because it hasn't seen the hordes of tourists coming to the country in the way that the island of Cyprus has. But I would say that I'm somewhat more optimistic today than perhaps six months ago. Why? Because for the first time, I see that the East and the West of Libya are coming together. This new government that has been put together is one that actually takes elements from both the East and the West. And all the people, be they the politicians and the military men in Libya itself, or the people from outside, the powers from outside who were pulling in one direction or the other. For instance, uh, let me say, like Turkey and Qatar and Italy pushing in the direction of West countries like Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, and uh, France pushing on the other side toward the East. This has relented a bit because there is a realization, I think, that Libya is for Libyans and they should get their act together. So we've got a a government there which has been approved, which has gone through the motions, both in Sirte and Tobruk. Now the question is, will it deliver? Because what this government has as its agenda is not to run the country in the next five years. It is to prepare the country for the general elections that are meant to take place at the end of this year in December 2021. That is its main agenda, to get the country ready for those elections. But in order to do that, and in order to prove credibility and encourage Libyans to go down the track of peace, This is a multi-layered, multi-track. They've got to think about all things from the political to the financial to the military to the international tracks, and that includes uh, the UNU envoy Jan Kubisch. It It involves the meetings in Berlin in January. But to prove themselves, what they have to do is to look at the basic services. Will they be able to impact the lives of the Libyans? I'll give you a very simple example, electricity. Will they be able to get the army, the military to work as one unit or as two? Let me mention to you that the new interim government has had its ministers appointed. The one minister that hasn't been appointed yet is the defense minister. And that to me is quite a telling statement because they still can't agree on who is the military boss. Uh, The interim government has to look at the oil revenue allocation system. It's hugely important because uh, Libya lives on oil. Its revenue is oil-based and it's got a lot to offer. So how will the allocation uh, work? And most importantly, but the most difficult thing when I talk about international players is what about all those mercenaries that are in the country who are wreaking havoc because they don't have any allegiance, they don't have any love for the country, it's not their homeland, but who have been brought there 
paid in order to uh, support one agenda, one military lord rather than the other. Those mercenaries, those people, chief amongst them are the Russian Wagner uh, mercenaries, they should be removed from the equation and sent out of Libya so that we can really say that uh, Libya is for the Libyans to decide its future. And that is going to be one hell of a, an exercise because to remove these people from the country, and they are not at the moment, they're spread across the country, is going to be a very, very difficult exercise. So for me, the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating in the sense that the interim prime minister, Dbebe, who is himself a businessman, who in some ways is pro-Turkey in his politics, will he manage to deliver on his promises? He has made promises to everybody in Libya in order to coax them into coming into this uh, interim national unity government that will take Libya to elections. Will he manage to deliver on his promises? A lot uh, rests on his shoulders, and that's very, very difficult. Now, I will conclude by just one thing. I'm not in the business of saying to our listeners, if you want far more on this particular subject, uh, go to this person or that person, uh, because I don't want to be partisan. But for Libya, one person whose analysis I like is an Italian woman who also speaks Arabic, many dialects actually, and who knows Libya very well. And she works for an international NGO that I respect, Crisis Group, and her name is Claudia Gazzini. If people want to learn more about Libya and the travails of Libya since the death uh, of uh, Muammar Gaddafi to date, go and check her. Or if you just want an overview, you and I, I think, are providing it. Yeah, very much so, Harry. Thanks for that. And, you know, if there's one thing that can be said, it's that the Libyans themselves deserve some peace after so long living um, in this terrible environment, really. Now, another group of people, Harry, or I'm sure you'd agree with me, deserve some peace are the Yemenis. Now, in Yemen, we've had, what, six years of war, crippling blockade. But now there's a, a UN-supervised ceasefire proposed between Yemen's Saudi-backed government and Houthi rebels who are supported by Iran. And I believe they haven't accepted this proposition as such. But um, where, where do we stand in Yemen? Because every time I read about Yemen, it just sort of breaks your heart, doesn't it? Yemen is a country that I like um, a lot. I visited uh, Yemen when I was working as a lawyer in, with trademarks and patents many, many, many moons ago. And I also visited it with a former uh, partner of mine because it's a beautiful place. And the Yemeni people are quite hospitable uh, people. And it really breaks my heart to see what is happening in that country, the destruction, the uh, it's, it's unbelievable because there is this havoc and destruction, there is uh, hunger, there is refugeehood, everything that could go wrong with this country over the past six years has gone wrong. And the two envoys, well, the UN envoy is uh, one of our own, a British uh, man called Martin Griffiths, and uh, President Biden has also appointed an envoy, Tim Lenderking, to try and help also bring some sort of peace together. Now, one question that has sort of teased me, and I was thinking of it as I was talking about Libya, could the Libyan peacemaking set of tracks be replicated in Yemen? Because if you think about it, it's not a million miles away. What the Libyans are trying to achieve uh, with this interim period in Libya, perhaps something along those same lines could be achieved in uh, Yemen as well. Now, the Saudi peace plan, James, that you refer to, what does it say? It includes a UN-supervised ceasefire. It includes measures to reopen uh, Sana'a Airport, the capital. Uh, 
And then it also includes the lifting of uh, trade restrictions on the government-controlled port, which is called Hudaida, which will then be followed by talks between the Houthi movement, which is supported largely by Iran, and the Yemen Saudi-backed coalition government. Now, as some of our listeners might know, if they only look at the international news Uh, we have the channels we have in this country, they would know that at the moment there is a huge fighting happening in the north in a place called Marib. Why? Because that is the only stronghold that the government-backed coalition has in the north of Yemen. Everything else in the north is in the hand of the Houthi uh, movement. And besides, Marib also is a source of hydrocarbons of gas. So there is a lot happening there. And if you look at the population there, peacetime population would have been something like uh, 20,000. It has uh, increased many, many fold, multiple times from refugees who've come from here and there, making it one of the largest population centers after the capital Sana'a itself. So in a sense, the Saudis came and said, this is our plan, let's do it. Now, why are the Saudis doing it? Because if you examine the uh, peace plan forensically, you will see that all those measures I just told you, the ceasefire, the reopening of the airport, uh, trade restrictions, etc., etc., are not a million miles away from things that have been banded about and discussed earlier. But The reason why the Saudis are doing this now is because they want to curry favor with the Biden administration. Uh, Joe Biden is different from Donald Trump. Joe Biden said that he's not so enamored with the Saudi royal leadership, particularly the crown prince, as Donald Trump was. And therefore, this and that uh, the Americans would stop giving any arms, any weapons to Saudi Arabia that would be used in the war against Yemen. So the Saudis are trying to show the Americans that here we are, we're trying to be uh, irenic, we're trying to be peaceful, here is a plan we've got, let's go ahead. You see, it's not us who don't want peace, it's the Houthi movement who are still fighting uh, in Marib and in other parts of uh, of. Yemen. So there is a lot of that politics happening, but at the at, at the core of it is that uh, Yemen today is entering a period where the parties, all the parties, are using the tools at their disposal, which is primarily uh, arms, to improve their bargaining position. They want to prove that the the more they get territory, the better it is for them in terms of their bargaining position. And what do I mean by bargaining position? I mean that although they're fighting like there's no tomorrow, the corollary of that fighting and the international pressure, I gave you the example of Martin Griffiths and Tim Lenderking, the corollary or the flip side, if you want, of that, the good news is that the fighting indicates that they are also negotiating. So there is a possibility that there might be a breakthrough at some stage. But there is also a possibility, and that is the bad news that countervails the good news, negotiations, is that a lot could go wrong because it is such a volatile, polarized uh, part of the world. A lot could go wrong. For instance, an errant air or missile strike could blow up the whole process. And if you look at your television news channels, whether it's BBC, Sky News, Al Jazeera, uh, New Arab, whatever, they constantly keep reminding us of drones coming and attacking uh, various oil installations or military uh, sites within Saudi Arabia. These come from Yemen. These are from the Houthis with, of course, technical support, I would suspect, from Iran itself. So this is where we are. And the reason the fighting is continuing in order to secure better bargaining positions for the negotiations is because the Houthi movement, which basically says it's fighting against Saudi incursion into its country, 
they see the Riyadh, in other words, the Saudi peace offering, as a sign of weakness that they can exploit. They know that the Saudis are in a pickle. They know that the American and U.S. administration is not too happy with the Saudis. So they're using that to the maximum to eke out any concession from the Saudis that they can for the time when they eventually will have to sit down around the rectangular table and decide the fate of uh, uh, Yemen. Meanwhile, James, the sad thing is that there are today 230,000 deaths uh, in the country, and going into the country or coming out of the country is hugely, hugely difficult, as you might well suspect. Do you know, it's interesting you say that, well, and tragic that you say that, because it makes me think of a proverb that I heard the other day, Uh, someone was reflecting on their 15 years in Zambia and they said when two elephants fight it's the grass that suffers and I suppose a lot of what we've talked about today you know it's the people in between isn't it sadly it is the people in between it's the ordinary people it's the ordinary disenfranchised uh, marginalized people in most of these countries in the Middle East North Africa who suffer the consequences of those power plays Power plays with a small p when it concerns the people in the country itself, politicians and the military in the country. Power plays with a capital P when you have big powers, more important powers from outside coming in and each one pushing in one direction. So it's an almighty tug of war where they don't give a hoot about the interests of the people in the country but their own interests from that country, drawn out of that country. And of course, when this happens, the disenfranchised, the marginalized people suffer because these people are not really citizens. These people, in most cases, are considered cannon fodder for their uh, rulers. And that is, in my opinion, at the very heart of every single revolutionary uprising in the Arab world. It is not so much only can I buy my pita bread or can I have more dignity or more freedom. Dignity, freedom, piece of bread, uh, peaceful living, all this, what does it mean? These are rights and incidentally responsibilities that we know we get ourselves into a lather when there is a problem in Clapham Common between the police and protesters. Imagine if you multiply that a hundredfold, a thousandfold, and see what is happening daily in parts of this region, then you can imagine why the concept of citizenship is alien to most of these people that rule these countries. And for the change to happen, it's very, very difficult. It's a structural change. And if we go back in our history, James, and you and I, I think, have touched upon this once before, and I used uh, France as an example, revolutions, revolutionary uprisings, don't bear fruit in five or ten years' time. It takes time. It's a process. It's a painful process. But hopefully, again, prophets and Socrates notwithstanding, it's a process that will lead to some good yield, some good results. Yes, that's a very good point and and proven, Harry, by the fact that we've been talking about some of these realities for over ten years and at best probably only seen you know, inching forward towards more peaceful solutions for the people. So I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, in the 10 or so years that we've spoken, I've said this, many of the people who've commentated on uh, the 10th anniversary of the uprisings, at least the first wave, have said the only country which shows some signs of hope post-revolutionary uprising is Tunisia. All the other countries are still very much in the cauldron. They haven't come out yet. Egypt is the same. The human rights uh, situation is atrocious. I mean, Egypt is run by military dictatorship. Uh, The other countries we've talked about, Libya, uh, Syria, uh, Yemen now, others as well, you and I could talk if we want to bore uh, the wits out of our listeners, 
All this is happening and it takes time. It takes time. It's difficult for rulers to understand that they're neither uh, omnipotent nor omnipresent nor omniscient and that they actually are there to serve their people who happen to be citizens. When that concept trickles in, filters through, then that would be a huge uh, breakthrough. At the moment, I'm not yet holding my breath. Well, I wouldn't hold your breath on this one either, Harry, because we're going to move now into Israel and talk about the elections. Now, we've spoken about this many times over the years, and obviously the focal point here is Benjamin Netanyahu, the magician, as he's called, for winning so many elections. Now, we were talking off mic, and you were telling me that I think I did read, actually, that it's a small Arab party that may be the kingmaker here. Yes, uh, that is the irony of it all, is that uh, Netanyahu, who in the last election only one year ago, he basically took his megaphone out and he started shouting, come on, ye citizens of Israel, ye supporters of Likud, Likud being his party, come Mm. and uh, vote for me because the Arab masses within Israel are coming out in droves to uh, to vote and the last thing we want is for them to have any representation in our political system so come and vote for me i'm your savior i mean the man suffers from uh, uh, megalomania if nothing else uh, he thinks he's got a sense of entitlement for the post of prime minister that on the one hand is totally mind gobbling but on the other hand is also particularly now is quite uh, fathomable, quite understandable. Why? Because, yes, he does think he's the new messiah, uh, politically speaking. But on the other hand, he also, I also understand his desperate attempts uh, to stay prime minister because that's the only way that he probably will stay out of jail given that there are three cases criminal cases, case 1,000, 2,000, and 4,000 in the Israeli uh, high court uh, against him. He's the defendant. So in a sense, if he stays prime minister, even in a caretaker government, and this is a point many people miss on, it's not only that he desperately wants to become the new prime minister, new between inverted commas, post-election, because then he he will firewall himself from any... Uh, judicial move to unseat him and uh, put him in jail because of his immunity. But uh, even if there is no government, even if we continue with this stalemate and he continues being the caretaker prime minister, that immunity still applies. So this is the man with his megaphone saying, ye supporters, come and uh, vote for me in 2019. And lo and behold, now in this last election, the Arab community, which roughly is about 20 to 21 percent over the overall population uh, of Israel, some eight, nine million, uh, he's telling them, come and vote for me. I'm the one to deliver services. I'm the one to be able to meet your needs, your economic needs, etc., etc. So much so that he has now. Uh, well, I don't know if he still does it, but uh, during the campaigning period, he was known as Abu Ya'ir. Abu Ya'ir is in an Arabic term, which means the father of Ya'ir. Who is Ya'ir? Ya'ir is his son. And in Arabic, there is a cultural affinity. Arabs always refer to the pater familias, to the head of the family, as the father of the first son. And so he was known as Abu Yair, and there was a signpost entering one of the Arab uh, towns within Israel itself, within the Green Line, which said in Hebrew, Abu Yair welcomes you, vote for me. This is the same guy. I mean, I know politics has no principles, but this is really (laughs) remarkable. And what, coming now specifically, having set the context, James, coming specifically to your point, yes, In the last one or two elections, 
the Arab parties, there are about four or five Arab parties, different parties from communists to Islamists to secular to middle of the road. They were all in the previous elections fighting the elections alone. So they were not really making much impact at all in parliament, in the Israeli Knesset. In the last one or two elections, they had this remarkable uh, eureka moment where they thought, okay, let's pool our uh, efforts together and run as one Arab bloc. We would get more members of parliament and therefore we would have a better and a bigger voice in parliament, which they did. However, in this last election, uh, one of those components, the head of one of those parties, his name is Mansour Abbas. He's, if you look at him, you would know, and I'm not being stereotypical, I'm just being uh, authentic. He is an Arab Israeli Islamist from the Muslim background who runs a party called in Hebrew Ra'am. And he decided to leave this united Arab bloc and run on his own because he said he wants to negotiate with Benjamin Netanyahu in order to get the services and the money and everything that he needs for his own constituency. And that if he stays with the Arab bloc in just ideological opposition to Netanyahu, he won't get anywhere. Now, guess what? When the elections took place, uh, everybody thought that his party, which had broken away from the bloc, will not be able to go above the electoral threshold and will not be able to make any contribution to the politics of 2021. Well, surprises galore in this election, and I do mean galore, uh, in terms of those who got more seats than expected and those who got less than expected, this man, Mansour Abbas, his party got four or five seats. I think it's four. And in an outcome, in an electoral result, which puts both Netanyahu's camp and the opposition camp on a knife edge, his four seats, whether they go with one side or the other, would make the difference between knighting a prime minister or destroying the hopes of that person to be prime minister. So everybody is now talking, knowing that Netanyahu is a magician, knowing that Netanyahu does not think of principles, but thinks of how to save his own ass or his own skin, forgive the French, uh, what he probably will do is enter some sort of an agreement with this man whereby it's you pat my back, I pat your back. You give me your support with those four seats and I'll give you all the money and whatever you need for your own uh, constituencies within the Arab towns that you are uh, part of. This is basically where people are at the moment. But let me throw in a, a couple of more complications. One complication is that there are uh, certain parties, Israeli Jewish parties, in the parliament who, would, who are part of the Netanyahu camp, but who would never dream of serving in a cabinet with Arab support. So by gaining those four seats, he might lose their Jewish seats, Hence, at the moment, this situation of it's going to be a long bargaining process before we decide whether Prime Minister, caretaker Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu will be able to rebaptize himself as the new Prime Minister or whether he will stay caretaker Prime Minister until we have a fifth round of uh, elections. I'll throw in two more bits and then I'll stop on this as well, James. Bit number one, in a sense, the opposite side, the flip side of the Mansour Abbas scenario is somebody called Naftali Bennett, who also has seven seats, I think, in this new election. And whether he tilts, he's from the religious right, he's to the right of Netanyahu. So you can well imagine where he is politically, certainly in terms of Palestinian issues. Uh, whether he goes with Netanyahu or he goes against Netanyahu with the secular parties, particularly with the 
top person who represents the opposition, somebody called uh, from Yeshatid called Lapid Yair, uh, it will also tilt the the balance one way or another. So all eyes at the moment are on two people, Mansour Abbas and Naftali Bennett, to see whether these two, how they will move in terms of saving, salvaging the Netanyahu uh, prospects or not. And if for some reason there is no government, new government, and we stay in the caretaker mode, or even if we have a government like happened last year where Benny Gantz was put as deputy prime minister and then the whole thing collapsed, people are saying a fifth uh, election. I'm hoping that we won't have a fifth election, but if we get to that stage, Israeli lawmakers, in other words, members of parliament in the Knesset, will say, look, we have to change, we have to put limits to this electoral system of proportional representation so that we weed out a lot of the smaller uh, parties and we manage to get a more solid result. But that is for dreamers like me. It's not what happens in reality. So I leave you with that, James, uncertainty on the Israeli electoral scene, which of course translates to uncertainty on the Palestinian front, which incidentally will hopefully, fingers crossed, see three elections in uh, uh, May, July and August as well to refurbish the Palestinian image in view of the Joe Biden administration. Look, Harry, we're fast closing in on the end of our podcast, and I do like to give you your final thought on things, which is always, uh, well, usually a bit quirky, a bit interesting, something a bit out of left field. Uh, But I do want to ask you that age-old question before I let this one go. Would any sort of election result, either imminently or down the line, even evoke the slightest movement towards a more peaceful relationship between Israel and Hamas in Gaza or the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank? Politics is not about friendships, James. It's about uh, interests. I quote, of course, Lord Palmerston. And in a sense, the day when the conflict peaks to such a level, when outside pressure peaks to such a level that it makes more sense to strike a deal than to maintain this vapid status quo, that is when something will happen. At the moment, I can't really see it happening. But then again, uh, you and I have laughed and smiled when we've said this, hope springs eternal. But then, Harry, are you saying that it's it's actually a bit of a grey area and it has to get an awful lot worse before people actually sit up and take notice and do something? No, it doesn't have to get a lot worse. It is already at a very critical stage on the Palestinian side. The same cannot be said of the Israeli side. There are two, there are protagonists here, the Palestinians and the Israelis. Both sides have to feel the pain in order to say, okay, we've got to do something to improve the situation. The Palestinians are in a in a deplorable state, politically speaking, at the moment. I really lament the situation the Palestinians are in and have been thrown in uh, by Donald Trump, no less, during those epic moments of friendship with uh, Netanyahu. But the Israeli side has not yet felt that pain. And it is when the Israelis realize that it is in their interest to sue for peace, to find peace with the Palestinians, that things will uh, get better, things would unravel. And of course, the longer it takes for this to happen, the harder it's going to be. Because if Netanyahu stays at the top of the political pyramid and he keeps satisfying his ultra-right allies by uh, creating more settlements, more outposts, by uh, expropriating more land, then the time will come when even if there are well-intentioned people on both sides to try and strike a deal, there will be no deal to strike because at the end of the day, the Palestinian conflict is simply a conflict over land. 
And if you take the land out of the equation, what is there that remains? Hence, the moves now that have gone from two-state solution, frustration and disappointment, to one-state solution, equally frustration and disappointment, because I can't see uh, Israel agreeing to that if it doesn't agree to the two-state solution, that now our people are basically talking, okay, one state, equal rights. It's it's a very difficult situation, but it's a dispute over land, and somebody has to say it's in the interest of both sides to strike a deal before the 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 date on the can expires. Yeah, very well said. Interesting too, but um, slightly depressing if I'm quite honest. Harry, look, this is anything that is not very depressing today. <laughs> I know, and the sad thing is, it's all it's all true. Unfortunately, um, watching brief, I think on many of these things, uh, so so many actors involved, so many peace processes with vested interests, as you've rightly said. What's your final thought, Harry? Well. What I said was a little bit uh, depressing, a little bit veering on the pessimistic rather than the optimistic side uh, of things for a reputed pessimist that was not a very good job done with you today on Middle East analysis, James, because I always like to infuse optimism in what I say. So my final thought is going to be a thought of optimism, of cheer, of celebration, why? Oh, thank thank goodness. Why? Because when we talk about this region, and you and I have spoken about this region from different angles, economic, political, social, religious, faith, etc. We always talk, and we saw this with Pope Francis in Iraq, we saw this with Pope Francis in the United Arab Emirates, we saw this with the Sheikh Al-Azhar, we see it with lots of people saying this, this is the land, the biblical lands, of uh, three monotheistic traditions or religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And isn't it nice that there is a relative concatenation of celebrations by or observances, if you prefer the term, by those three uh, traditions, faith traditions, during this same season from end March to mid-April? Uh, Why am I saying this? Because Jews the world over will be celebrating Passover. A Passover in Hebrew is Pesach, by the way. And what is Passover or Pesach for the Jewish tradition? It recalls the liberation of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And it's a very interesting seven-day uh, process Actually, it's eight days in the diaspora and seven days within Israel itself, where you have strict dietary requirements, where you have religious, the religious, the secular, the old, the young, all of them coming together, eating unleavened bread, matzo, and bitter herbs, uh, recounting stories from of the Exodus from the Haggadah. If memory serves me right, it's 14 parts, so it takes quite a bit of reading and recounting. But a lot of this, then drinking and being jolly, this is Pesach or Passover for the Jews. And I think it's one. Now we come to the second tradition or what uh, follows from the old to the new, and that is Christians enter their week, their holy week, that takes them toward Easter. And for me, that is beautiful, not only in terms of what everybody says, even now the most consumerist cards put uh, a picture of the resurrection without really understanding what the Dickens they're talking about. But uh, I'm showing my age, James, sorry. Uh, the, the, uh, the thing about Easter for me is also very important because the Christian tradition believes that Jesus was both human and divine. And in that act of sacrifice, the crucifixion that led to the resurrection, you have the human transmogrifying, changing into the divine, the miracle of the resurrection that follows the human crucifixion and leads for Christians towards salvation. I think this is beautiful 
image in my own mind. And of course, the third monotheistic tradition is Islam. And Muslims next month, just I think before mid-April, and uh, the season is basically dictated by the moon calendar, is Ramadan. Ramadan, the holy month of Ramadan starts. And what is Ramadan? Ramadan is not only fasting. Ramadan is fasting, but it's not only about fasting from food. It's fasting from all sorts of things. It's about also giving to charity. But at its core, it's the month where God revealed the first chapters of the Quran to the Prophet Muhammad as far back as 610 AD, our calendar. So you have Passover some 3,000, 3,500 years ago, meeting Easter on Holy Week and Passion Week, call it what you may, some 2,000 years ago, and then coming to Ramadan and the revelation of the Holy Quran. For me, that is as nice an agenda for interfaith and outreach as all the bells and whistles people put to it. Very well put, Harry. And yes, more, more cause for optimism there. And I think I might be a little bit fair to you in that Yemen and Libya, you know, there are shoots there of, of, of possible optimism. We shouldn't be massively negative and dismissive and, oh, it will be the same old picture, the same old story of a peace process in the Middle East, North Africa. Who knows? We, we can definitely hope and be more optimistic for a peaceful future for the people. Harry, we've done a lot today. We've done Syria 10 years on. And actually, you've done more than that because you've talked about Libya. You've talked a little bit about Egypt and, and the wider region. We've just done the Israeli elections, Yemen too. This has been a packed Middle East analysis. It has. Every time we start with the false hope that we're <laughs> going to have a very disciplined, short, sharp uh, Middle East analysis, James, you and I, but then we get carried away and we try to convey as much to the listener as possible. And that also is a reflection of, I think, both of us are very committed to this region. And therefore, we try to say as much as possible, particularly since we only say it once a month these days. The good thing is we have identified very clearly the themes from Syria to Yemen to Libya to Israel, uh, Palestine to an afterthought. So people can decide to listen only to the bit they like and uh, forget uh, the rest. I wouldn't do that because I hold myself rather highly on this. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, c'est la vie, as we say in French. Look, it's been an hour-long tour through the Middle East, into North Africa, back across to Yemen, into the Israel-Palestinian reality. I do hope people will come with us on that for the full hour. Absolutely, Harry. But as you say, yes, I will time code it. So if you want to dip in and out, if you want to spin on a bit or go back a bit or listen again to a certain bit, let's be a little bit charitable and say that if you are going to take on Syria, Israeli elections, Libya, Egypt, Yemen, Israel-Palestine, you know, if you break it down, you're talking 10, 11, 12 minutes on each. So in truth, that's not a huge amount of time to discuss those rather complicated realities. So yes, listeners, please do go with us or feel free to dip in and out as, as you see fit. Harry, thanks for summing up there in a more positive manner at the end there with those three monotheistic faiths. Very interesting, very nicely done as well. And we'll just look forward to having your time, listeners, next month, where I believe, Harry, again, we're going to talk about the uh, Armenian genocide, aren't we? Yes, we are. Uh, it will be yet another time when we will uh, ponder about the Armenian genocide. And we will also think, in my opinion at least, what after because we cannot stay frozen. We have to move in time. And what does that mean in view of the uh, commemoration of the genocide which happened during World War I and the uh, war in the South Caucasus a couple of months, three months ago? And what does that mean in the larger scheme of things uh, for everybody? So yes, uh, we'll hopefully have a go at that next month, uh, James, and uh, we'll, we'll give more details of things happening uh, during the month too. Plus, 
as usual, as usual, let me conclude by saying thank you, because I couldn't do this on my own. And it is always a pleasure to basically enter into this discussion with you, you pointing me in the right direction, gently shifting the direction when you feel I'm beginning to stray, uh, trying to keep it interesting for the uh, listeners. And thank you to all the listeners as well, regardless of your background, regardless of your beliefs. I think this is a viewpoint. And as I said, on my behalf and on behalf of Socrates, I wish you nice holidays, be you a Jew, be you a Christian, or be you a Muslim. And you can certainly speak on my behalf for that as well, Harry. So thank you ever so much. And uh, yeah, looking forward to speaking to you in April. Inshallah.